Live from WNUR News, I'm Margot Muell. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1, Evanston, Chicago. It's Friday, February 3rd, 2023. Tonight on WNUR News, chat GPT, an Oscar nominations roundup, and a tale of two libraries. Thanks for turning thanks for tuning in. Good evening, college radio station listeners. Today, we've got a special story to share with you all about the cutting-edge technology of AI language models. Sound like those two sentences were written by a human? Well, if you think so, you'd be wrong. That was the introduction I asked ChatGPT to write for me. Reporter Maria Jimena Aragon has a scoop on ChatGPT usage at Northwestern. Recently, I've been hearing the words ChatGPT everywhere. From TikToks to class projects, the new OpenAI chatbot has taken over discussions surrounding its role in education to ethical human-computer interactions. So it's like a lot of like fine-tuning, like sort of giving it more prompts and telling it to like refine it itself. Um, Yeah, so... Medill senior Yuyan Zhang was the first person to show me how it works in the middle of our design project. So from brainstorming ideas for our product to writing cover letters for jobs, ChatGPT is part of the Northwestern community in more ways than we think. Yeah, it was kind of like coming at it from two sides, right? So one, I like just threw it in the prompt to see what it wrote, right? Because there might be like something that it thought of that I'm missing. I'm like, oh, that's good to include. And then I have like my own piece that I threw into it. I was like, can you mix this together? Um, and then there was like more like back and forth of like either me manually editing, editing or me asking GPT to edit. Oh, okay. Would you trust it to do it entirely? No. Okay. I guess it really depends on like what it is. Um, but for like a job application specifically, one, it feels a little unethical if I'm just like, I'm not applying for the job as ChatGPT. Um, another part is I think elements of like my voice that I think it doesn't capture exactly. So I asked ChatGPT to write an intro for this story. And here's what it wrote. Hello and welcome to WNUR News, your source for all things Northwestern University. Today, we're diving into the exciting world of artificial intelligence. In this episode, we'll be exploring ChatGPT, the innovative language model developed by OpenAI. From its cutting edge capabilities to its impact on our campus, we'll take a closer look at how this advanced AI tool is changing the way we communicate and interact with technology. So sit back, relax, and join us for this exciting episode of WNUR News. I think I'll stick with the one I started with. So Rezo, the Responsible AI Student Organization, is a group of several committees, um, all kind of centered around AI and how it relates to student experience. So I'm on the education committee, and every week we lead discussions with students, um, generally focused around a topic of AI in the news or some critical issue that we think is interesting. Uh, We've had all kinds of discussion topics from Elon Musk to Dolly to everything else you could imagine. So we we do a pretty wide range of things. That's McCormick Jr. Garrett Weil speaking, and he's been helping lead these conversations way before I have. So as the education committee, we we try to try to expand um, people's viewpoints and see uh, how AI can help or what's going on. 
So we like to offer demos of how ChatGPT works and then try and get people's opinions on how they feel it might impact education, for example. Like if, if all of a sudden you can write your whole essays for all of your classes with this new model, do you think that's right? Do you think you should be able to? And just kind of learning about how the community thinks about these tools. So one of the conversations we had uh, just a couple of weeks ago was about ChatGPT's role in an educational situation. Um, and I think that two of the perspectives that I really took away from the discussion and that I enjoyed a lot were first that ChatGPT is going to be in a way like Wikipedia. So in the same way, I think ChatGPT will take that role in that it's going to be more of a starting place for, for essays or other things that people would use it and that we'll actually have an opportunity to teach people editorial and critical thinking skills on a higher level. Um, and going off of that, the second perspective that I think is, is novel and useful considering ChatGPT is that now with text generation largely able to be outsourced to machines, I think that as humans, our role then becomes critical thinking and editorializing. In a lot of ways, um, the generated text is useful and hitting at the right things, but it is really just a, a complicated piece of math at its heart. So it it doesn't totally get the nuance of language and frequently will write either very persuasive things that are false or just write nonsense for a small time. So I think it's um, a good chance for people to outsource the original creativity and hone in on their editorial creativity. I know there's always a fear of the unknown, fear of new things developing and new technologies. How do you mitigate those fears and just, you know, really introduce this in a safe and kind of like well-rounded discussion? That's a, a great question. It's definitely a challenge, um, but I think for the most part, we can take confidence that people are more excited than they are scared about some of these tools. A lot of them definitely have real world impact, but at the time being, the, the technology is limited enough that they're usually used on kind of toy problems. Um, so it's, it's nice to know that, that these aren't being used to write uh, manipulative manuscripts to, to sway the minds of people just yet, um, but more, more closely give people uh, an idea of some random questions they have. A recent study by researchers at Northwestern University and the University of Chicago found that when scientists were asked to review ChatGPT-generated abstracts, they were correct only 68% of the time. This has prompted many questions surrounding academic integrity and the use of open AI in the future. I think it's important that people know that the ethics of AI is not just up to the people who are designing the development of these projects. Um, everyday users are, are able to have an impact who you spend to who you choose to spend time browsing and interacting with contributes to them. So if you see an issue or you take issue with development that's going on in the real world, you do have the ability to have an impact and have conversations with others around you. But when it comes to like academia specifically, I think it could be a very powerful tool, right? The same way that Google Docs has spell check or like it like auto corrects your spelling, right? I feel like those things we don't consider cheating anymore. Just sort of a way that could enhance our workflow. Um, and you know, I'm I'm not really sure what will happen in the future, but I think it's important for us to start just 
playing with those tools to really understand its limitations instead of like theorizing about it in theory of like we should do this we shouldn't do this like let's just see what happens and then like sort of make decisions from there i'm maria jimena aragon wnur news This past Tuesday, the nominees for the 95th Oscar Awards were announced. Amid surprises and disappointments, a few movies stood out in particular. Reporter Jesse Chen has the story. It's where the Top Gun meets the underdog. The Rubber meets the Tar. The Fablemans meet the Banshees of Inisherin. Elvis meets Blonde. And everything everywhere happens all at once. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... It's awards season. You ain't nothing but a dog player. Okay, well, everything everywhere getting 11 nominations. Yes. I think most of us saw that coming. That's James Lee, a first-year Northwestern student majoring in radio, television, film, who also happens to be an affiliate member of the Chicago Indie Critics. Yeah, I really, you know, I expected a lot of Fableman's love, Banshees of an Asherian love. Right. And Veronica Savosa. Another RTBF first year and longtime follower of the Oscars. First held at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel, the Academy Awards for Motion Picture Arts and Sciences has been recognizing excellence in cinematic achievements since 1929. This past Tuesday, the nominees for the 95th Oscars were announced. I spoke with my fellow first year RTBF majors, James and Veronica, about some of their opinions and predictions for the upcoming awards ceremony taking place on March 27th. James and Veronica share one of their biggest disappointments in this year's Oscar cycle, the exclusion of a prominent South Korean film directed by Park Chan. Uh -huh. One, two, three. Decision, Decision to, to leave. leave. Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> Ridiculous. Like, I was like, almost <laughs> threw my phone when I didn't see that in the foreign and the international. Veronica also expressed her unpopular appreciation for Babylon, the Damien Chazelle film that performed rather poorly at the box office. I feel like it could have gotten more than just like score and production design. Right, yeah. Um, I really loved, especially Diego Calva, I thought he was really oh, great. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and Margot Robbie was, I think, was pretty good. She could have gotten a supporting actor. There were also some questionable nominations. We need to talk about Andrew Reismer. Referring to the lead actress in the drama, To Leslie, who has garnered a fair share of criticism for her Oscar campaign tactics. That because crazy. that is the one, that's gonna set like an enormous precedent yeah. for like award actor campaigns. I saw To Leslie like two days after that came up because like I had been hearing about like the grassroots campaign for this because yeah. like 12 different like extremely high profile actresses were just like rapidly posting about yes. that Instagram. Among which were Susan Sheridan. Helen Hunt and Zoe Deschanel. Even fellow nominee Kate Blanchett mentioned Riseborough in her Critics' Choice Awards but, you speech. Know, um, Andrea Riseborough. She's and she's really Tenny. good in it, mm -hmm. in an otherwise like totally unexceptional like addiction recovery drama. Yeah. James also expresses his dismay in the Oscar stumps of actresses Viola Davis for The Woman King, and Danielle Didwiller for Till. If you think that's unfair, <laughs> if you think that's unfair, and if you think like Riseboro is directly responsible for Davis and Deadweiler being pushed out of the out of like consideration, we need to talk about the institutions that like allow this to happen. No, yeah, it just really and, like, shows like the importance of yeah. campaigning in yeah. like award shows. How like the, at the end of the day, your performance doesn't matter. It's just whoever campaigns the most, and I guess this really showed that like. A movie with yeah, a movie with a twenty-seven thousand dollar box office could get <laughs> yeah. a nomination just because of 
connections, I guess. James also speaks to the implications of the controversy, as Riseboro's campaign differs from the typical large-budget studio-backed strategies. This is gonna reshape, like, how, you know, different studios are gonna think about campaigning. Like, yeah. there's no question about this. Like, True. they will go to every possible end to make a grassroots campaign work, yeah. having seen this work. On a more positive note, James and Veronica both expressed their joy at the nomination of Paul Mescal for his role in the A24 film, After Sun. Paul Mescal! That was like the so best happy. surprise ever. <laughs> like, I, I jumped in my seat. I was full of glee. Um, After Sun was my favorite movie of last year. And it's I, my number five, yeah. yeah and it's I expected so it. Like, I didn't expect a single nomination, knowing the Oscars. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, they wouldn't. Like, I was like, this isn't an Oscars movie. They wouldn't give it to a little film like this. But then he got a nomination, which was okay so well deserved. Especially and for, like, such an understated performance, too, like, relative such, like, to the other nominees. Like, not a lot of doubt. It's just, like, his face, I guess. The way he motes. And it was just, it's so deserving. And I was so happy. Like, that was one of, like, the few really happy surprises. However, James and Veronica believe Miss Cal's chances of winning are slim. Instead, they're placing their bets between the performances of Colin Farrell for The Banshees of Inisherin, Austin Butler for Elvis, and Brendan Fraser for The Whale, which they think will be a close race. Speaking of I mean, which, like Michelle Yeoh versus Kate, Kate Blanchett. Blanchett. Like, this would be <laughs> what I would accept as the second tie after Barbara Streisand and Katherine Hepburn. In reference to the Best Actress showdown, this year, Michelle Yeoh makes history as the first Asian woman to be nominated in this category for her portrayal of the struggling mother, Evelyn Wang, in the sci-fi drama Wang, Everything Everywhere us? All at Once. I am paying attention. Two-time Academy Award winner Kate Blanchett sports her eighth nomination for her role as the fictional conductor Lydia Tarr in the Todd Field film, Tarr. You want to dance the mask? You must service the composer. So far, critics' opinions have been mostly split. Notably, both Yo and Blanchett won at the Golden Globes. Blanchett in the drama category, and Yo in the comedy or musical category. We have we have basically like a, a standoff between a role that took forty years to prepare yeah. for and a role so towering and might be the most illustrious in yes. like a great career. And of course, the most anticipated category every year, Best Picture has been a hot topic. This year, there seems to be a consensus among audiences and critics. Josh Ryan, a third year studying biology in RTVF, says he thinks Everything Everywhere All at Once has a significant chance of winning. Everything Everywhere All at Once is one of those few films that I feel that people I know personally who are really into film have been excited about, and um, people I know outside film have been excited about. Josh says that unlike box office hits such as Avatar The Way of Water, which focus solely on the visual spectacle, it takes more substance for a film to actually win in this category. It's just one of those things where it's like, you have to think of the ones that hit mainstream the hardest and hit the film nerds the hardest, and that's the one that hits both. James and Veronica also echo his sentiments with a small level of doubt. The Oscars always have a tendency to pick middle of the road movie a lot. Veronica mentioned the Academy's infamous rank choice voting system. Basically that like, everyone gets like a ballot, I guess. And they, they rank put, everything. And they rank everything. They put like their number one movie, then number two, number three, number four. Like and they can like yeah, there's yeah. no like multiple like you put whatever movie you want there. Imagine like one is like worth like ten points, like two is worth like and then it's basically like whichever movie has like the most points. Not necessarily the movie that's been number one the most times, but like that's why like movies like Code and very middle of the road movies because sometimes if a movie's like number five for everyone, it could have more points yeah. than a movie that was like number one for a lot of people, but then it like also was like ten not for some people, people yeah. or like not in the list for some people. So that's why a lot of movies that are like tend to be in the middle win a lot. James adds that this middling phenomenon 
occurs typically when exciting movies aren't in the mix. Yeah. When I say more exciting movie, I don't mean like a better movie because Power of the Dog was much better. James is referring to the Jane Campion film that lost Dakota last year. But I mean like a movie that had like such substantive hype behind it that like it made sense that everyone would rally behind it like Moonlight, Shape of Water, Parasite, like all these were big deals like in the in their respective ballots. However, both James and Veronica still have high hopes for everything everywhere all at once. It might be exciting enough that more people decide to put it like higher in the rankings like across the board. And so if that happens, to help you. We have a great line. <laughs> They also express their personal preference for the Banshees of Anishirin. I would yeah. be really happy for Banshees. Yeah, I'd be happy. I love Banshees of <laughs> It's Anishirin. so good. I, I think it. it's very difficult to make a tale about ghosting in like yes. an isolated island in Ireland. So, so compelling so and so like atmospheric and existentially dreadful. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. You didn't do to me. James and Veronica agreed one category that already seems to have a certain winner is Best Original Song. I think the most important takeaway we have to get from this is Natsu Natsu needs to win Best Original Song. Yes, yes. It needs to win Best Original Song, right? Because none of the other songs there are nearly as exciting no. or as like, you can't as easily dance to them as you can to Natsu. <laughs> like, James is, of course, referring to the song by Priya Hamish and Rahul Sipligunj for the action drama R, R, R. Like, I, I feel like sure. since it didn't get submitted for Best International Film, I feel like everyone that would have voted for that in International Film <laughs> is yeah. going to vote for Best Original It's possible. Yeah. That was one the Golden Globe for Best Original It did. So and everyone was like really nothing. excited about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know I was really excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. James and Veronica also gave their opinions on the growing disillusionment surrounding award shows. I mean, I don't think award shows are credible by any means. Yeah. I watch them for enjoyment purposes. <laughs> and just like turn off like it's something to get excited about but it never determines the my favorite movie of the year oh, yeah. what what's the best movie of the year it's mostly to watch <laughs> rich people be happy for the movies they made or just be really confused and like last really year confused. when you know what happens <laughs> no i love there's nothing i yeah. love more than getting angry <laughs> at the Academy. yeah 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 lastly they expressed their excitement for kiwi kwan's nomination for his performance in everything everywhere all at once i know kiwi kwan is definitely going to win best supporting actor yeah. i'm going to cry when he goes up on that stage and reflect on one of their favorite oscar moments i remember when olivia Colman oh no i i rewatched that speech i would say <laughs> once a month <laughs> like, she's so confused but it's like Lovely um, <laughs> Referring to Coleman's best oh, actress in speech people. in 2019. If, by the way, I forget anybody, I'm going to find you later. I'm going to give you all like, the good stuff. Yes. They're all deserving winners, and they're also truly baffling winners. Yeah. To end on a cautionary note. You know, like, you can't expect, like, a group of self-aggrandizing rich people to, like, really, you know, yes. like, keep their fingers on the pulse of, like, what makes for the best movies of the year. Like, that's, like, for everyone else to really decide at the end of the day. For WNUR News, I'm Jesse Chat. Two libraries, both alike in dignity, both incredibly different in style. How did Gothic Deering end up next to Concrete Maine? Reporter Allison Rauch has more. Whether stopping for a break, meeting with friends, or catching up on some work, chances are you've been in one of Northwestern's libraries. 
And although Mud wins some love for its North Campus proximity and uh, showers, it's really a question of Deering or Maine. It's a sharp juxtaposition. Deering's collegiate Gothic towers and stained glass windows are featured on campus tours, adorn official merch, and serve as a backdrop for many a club photo shoot. Maine lurks behind, a hulking, brutalist building that sprawls out in every which way. How did two completely different buildings end up literally connected on Northwestern's campus? Architectural projects as big as a college campus can evolve over time. Wendy Dunham Tita, a principal at a firm called Page in Austin, Texas, described this effect. To where you are with Northwestern, when you look at that campus in many ways, you at least have an understanding of when things were built and you have an understanding of the priorities at different times. Deering was the first of the two libraries to be built, with construction starting in 1931 and finishing in 1933. Architect James Gamble Rogers modeled the library after the King's College Chapel in Cambridge, England. Tour guides love to point out that the King's College Chapel and buildings like it inspired the architecture of Hogwarts. But Deering was created in the collegiate Gothic style. I mean, obviously Deering is prettier. And it has more of that like Gothic influence, which comes from Northwestern being originally founded as a Methodist institution. Deering is like, like Gothic, cute, like she's giving like European architecture, like cathedral. I definitely think Deering is so much prettier than Maine because of all the old architecture and the windows and the ivy on the outside. The collegiate Gothic style emerged in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as a subgenre of the Gothic revival. Think carved stone facades, buttresses, and stained glass windows. A lot like a church, which Dunham Tita says is on purpose. Collegiate Gothic really had a lot to do with Oxford and Cambridge universities. Those Universities were using styles built on kind of early medieval Gothic kind of compounds and and those churches. And part of the reason the churches look the way they do is because they were trying to inspire awe and they were trying to create these feelings of like light and airy. They were using architecture to inspire awe in a religious context. That was kind of translated into these universities that were also trying to kind of inspire a feeling of importance. Dunham Tita says that American universities then copied European universities to give an air of established importance to their newer institutions. Northwestern seems to have gone all in in that area. The Gothic style has extended to the campus's signage, merch, and athletic uniforms. But looking at U.S. college campuses as a whole, the collegiate Gothic style is everywhere. Dunham Tita remembered touring schools with her son. When we went to Lehigh, it is collegiate gothic. We walked in and Marcus was just like totally tuned out. And, you know, he's like, I don't want to go to school at Hogwarts. I don't want to be in old buildings. I am design. I want to design the future. Which brings us to Maine, definitely not a collegiate gothic building. Construction began in 1966 with doors opening in 1970. Maine was designed by architect Walter Nesh of Chicago-based firm Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill. Nesh is particularly known for championing the brutalist style of architecture. I think that Maine is just like really an eyesore. It's like not cute to look at. I was once told it was supposed to look like a bookshelf, but like to me it just looks like cinder blocks. I'm gonna be honest, I think Maine gets a bad rap. 
Um, it's not that ugly. Actually, it's like strangely beautiful when you think about it. <laughs> Despite its appearance, brutalism did not get its name from the word brutal. Rather, it comes from the French phrase beton brut, or raw concrete. Dunham Tita joked that many architects seem to like brutalism because it allows for greater design control. Concrete is liquid and you can form it into all kinds of things and it can be much more sculptural. And there is this idea of a kind of honestness, you know, of materials and, and I think an appreciation of, of the monumentality that buildings could be. Brutalism gained popularity in the UK and the US for municipal buildings in the 1950s and 1960s. But why for a library, especially next to another library that looks entirely different? Dunham Tita explained how changing materials and techniques can influence the intentions of a design. Instead of a presence of lightness aspiring to God, it was a presence of like the importance of a library and like a visual weight. And so you can see just how these colleges and the mindset is, is shifting. And then the architecture is shifting because they might not have had a master plan that was rigorously keeping a style. So in a way, the juxtaposition of Deering and Maine goes beyond a pretty library and an ugly library, or a collegiate Gothic building and a brutalist building. They are markers of ideologies, of the university's goals and sense of self over time. Choosing a favorite library, then, could be a student's way of marking their own sense of self. The utility of an all-silent library for me, is zero. Like, I have no desire. I hardly have a desire to study anyway. So if I'm going to, it's going to be with friends. So Deering, as, in terms of its purpose, is pretty meh to me at best. Maine is great. Core, One South, Chef's Kiss. And aesthetics aside, the most important part of any building is its functionality. I think a lot of people think architecture is only the outside, but interior architecture, like there's so much about the experience of buildings. Those essential qualities might not really have anything to do with the outside, but they are able to have their essential needs met by the inside. So though the Deering main debate will never be settled, take some time to really look at these buildings next time you're walking by. They're much more than just libraries. For WNUR News, I'm Allison Rauch. Welcome back to WNUR News. It's 6.30 p.m. Central Time. A look at the weather for tonight. It's shockingly cold right now in Evanston. Students can expect weather in the low 30s and 10s for the upcoming week. Taking a look into the headlines. At Northwestern and in Evanston, a fire damages local smoothie and juice bar Four Sons Fresh Juice this morning. No injuries were reported. In Greek life, a forcible sex offense allegedly occurred at the Alpha Epsilon Phi fraternity on January 27th. The case is now closed on the Northwestern University police blotter. More updates regarding the situation have yet to be released. From Washington, Secretary of State Antony Blinken was supposed to make a short trip to China this weekend. However, hours before Blinken's scheduled departure for Beijing, the trip was canceled. In response to an alleged Chinese spy balloon flying over the United States. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news and updates and reports, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News. You can listen to these and other WNUR News stories on our website, WNUR.news. That's WNUR.news. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Our producer today is Sarah Cadora, and our reporters are Maria Jimena Aragon, Jesse Chen, and Allison Rauch. From all of us here at WNUR News, thanks for listening. I'm Margot Muell. Catch our next newscast on Monday, February 6th at 6 p.m. Now, back to schedule programming.